This episode is brought to you by The Growth Strategy Programme, the only online programme for the founders of scaling consumer packaged goods brands that helps you set your business up for the next phase of serious growth. To find out when the next cohort starts, go to fionafitzconsulting.com, then click online courses and register your interest today. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Who out there listening would love to be handed Nielsen data that showed that your brand, selling nationally only recently, now accounts for over a third of the growth of the very traditional grocery category that it sits in? Well, that's exactly what the Little Moon's Mochi ice cream team were able to celebrate this week after a whirlwind 20 months where the brand has created a new, distinct segment in take-home ice cream and has introduced Mochi to millions of consumers across the UK. But although the Little Moon story is a recent media darling and is now selling tens of millions of pounds of Mochi across all major supermarkets and employing over 300 people, the company actually started out in 2010. We talked to sister and brother founders Vivian and Howard Wong about their manufacturing journey from developing their recipe to fixing machinery on the phone to the engineers and generally becoming masters of their craft, about why food service was the right channel for them to see their future business success and about the impact on their business of 320 million views on TikTok. Vivian and Howard Wong from Little Moons, thank you so much for joining us on Brand Growth Heroes this morning. How are you both doing? Great. Thank you so much for having us. Hi. Thanks for having us. And thank you both for agreeing. It's really good to have a brother and a sister on the show. So listen, Howard, tell us about Little Moons. What is it? Where do we find it? Make people salivate. Right. So uh, Little Moons is a mochi ice cream company. Uh, Mochi ice cream are small balls of gelato ice cream that are wrapped in a thin layer of rice dough, which makes them snackable. Um, We are found in all the major UK retailers. Um, We started our journey um, supplying restaurants across London and then across Europe. Um, And we've recently grown our revenue three times uh, in the last year on the back of uh, kind of going viral on TikTok. Wow, that is amazing, especially during lockdown as well. So what kind of size are you guys now? Um, we're on a run rate of about three million a month at the moment. So not just making a salivate in terms of snackable ice cream balls, but making a salivate in terms of a run rate of about three million a month. That is pretty impressive, guys. So it should be said, you are both your brother and sister. So you've built this business together. Vivian, when did it all start? We started back in 2010 because people often think we're an overnight success with TikTok, but we have been plugging away for for many years. And um, and so when we first started the business, like you mentioned, we did start selling to food service first. I think it was quite a new product. We knew that if we went straight into grocery, no one would take us off the shelves. And so we needed to build a market for this new product. And so we thought it would be great if we could get lots of people to sample it. And the best place to do that is restaurants, because people go to restaurants. They want to try new things. They're more open to to, to trying new things. And it sort of places us. So particularly in a Japanese restaurant, you're going there, you like Japanese food, you're willing to try something different. And so when we were on the dessert menus of many Japanese restaurants, we found lots of people you know, ordering us, trying us, you know, liking us. And we kind of grew the business from there. 
It's amazing. So this was actually a planned strategy where you said, right, we're not going to go down the normal challenger route. Probably challenger didn't really exist as a concept back then, did it? But we are going to go food service first, seed the idea amongst the people who want to try this kind of product and give them the experience of that perfect serve in a restaurant where they're probably spending a little bit of money. They've been looking forward to it all week and they're going to have that end of meal yumminess and that a mochi ball can really deliver. Can you tell us a little bit more about mochi balls for those who've never seen them or which won't be anyone in the UK, I don't think at this point, but just anyone around the world who doesn't know what a mochi ball is and the kind of flavours and ranges and what they look like? Sure. So mochi is actually um, a Japanese rice dough, which has a really chewy, soft um, texture, which is what it's famous for. Um, And it comes in lots and lots of different forms. It could be a solid ball of mochi. It can be kind of ambient or chilled. Um, We wrap this mochi dough around um, balls of ice cream, probably about the size of a golf ball, um, using really, really high quality ice cream. Um, And essentially, it means that you have a handheld snackable ice cream uh, with a chewy textural dimension to it, um, with lots and lots of different flavours, um, which kind of opens up totally new eating occasions uh, for ice cream. And experience, right? Vivian, why did you decide to make frozen ice cream-based mochi balls? We do frozen and we also do chilled. Oh, you do chilled? Yeah, we do chilled um, mochi balls, which we sold to a lot of the sushi bars. Sorry, I was going to cut in there because I thought uh, when we first launched, um, we were really inspired by goo. And we saw the growth journey of Goo. We, we always looked up to it. We thought, this is amazing. It's come out of nowhere. And it really kind of, re- kind of you know, moved the chilled category along. And um, we launched, actually, with a chocolate ganache mochi, which is a chilled product. And that's what we started selling to Yosushi first. And we thought that that would be an easier route to market. And we had this theory that people kind of opened up their fridge all the time and looked for something to eat. And we thought that that's like way more exciting a place to be than the frozen category. And so that was actually our initial hero product, um, and we, which we still make to this day, um, supplying Yo Sushi with it. I had no idea. I did not know. So you were inspired by Goo and you went into the chiller. How did that go for you, Vivian? Yeah, no, it was food service into the, into the chiller. And, and, and I think it was Yo Sushi did really well at it. They really liked the dessert. It was their best selling dessert. And then we, we brought on another line, which was our strawberry cheesecake, which was sort of a, a chilled cheesecake mochi. And those did really well. But we always wanted to do mochi ice cream as well, because um, we tried that product when we'd gone to Japan, when we'd gone to America. And our parents have a bakery that makes traditional mochi, which is um, filled with red bean um, you know, it's, it's very traditional. But we knew that that probably wouldn't catch on so much because both textures are kind of odd. Like there's a bean, which is slightly savory. Well, it's not savory, but it's just a bit odd. And then you've got the odd mochi. And so when we tried it with ice cream, we thought, gosh, this is magic. It's amazing. We loved how the mochi worked with ice cream, but we thought we could make this ice cream better. And so we, we went about developing putting it together because it's quite a technical process to put hot dough with with frozen ice cream. So it took a, a while to develop that product. But that was a product that then also sold really well across the restaurants. And we did start with quite Asian flavours like our yuzu, our matcha green tea, our sesames. Um, and so that's that's what we started selling to the higher end restaurants. So if that was phase one of the business, how long did, so at this point, I think you told me before that you were producing in your parents' bakery at the beginning, were you? Yeah. Yeah. So how long was that phase of the business where you're producing in the bakery, you're selling into high-end restaurants and it's kind of Asian-inspired flavours? 
I'd say it's probably about three years um, where we, we just grew from um, firstly London-based restaurants and then we were going you know restaurant by restaurant and then we ended up working with larger and larger distributors who were doing the selling on, on our behalf. And then we started finding those same type of distributors across Europe. So cookie cutter, this is what works. This is the model that works. Let's do this in other markets that have a similar need and a similar restaurant structure. You know, what I also found, though, is that when I did go to the distributors, particularly in the UK first, they weren't interested. They, they looked at me. They thought, oh, this is the, a young girl. Like, not being, you know, they did. And they said, you know, how might why would I sell this to my customers? You're not going to be around in six months. You're a brand new company. You've got no experience in this. And I just thought, hmm, I can't I can't argue against it. Like, you know, I, I just don't know. So then I went to see the chefs and the chefs had faith in us. They really liked the product. And so they then instructed their distributors to take us on. And so it worked that way. Absolutely. And food service, in food service, that's often the way, isn't it? You've got to get the decision maker to get the pull through from their distributor and attack it from both angles, don't you? Okay, so what was the next shift then? When did the gears shift and what were you guys thinking at the time? Or did it just happen? We always had ambitions to be a a kind of grocery brand that kind of sold to shops. Um, And so we were plugging away for many years on our branding. We launched into Whole Foods in 2015. Once we had kind of our, our first range of six flavors out and we'd branded it all up. And actually, a lot of, um, a lot of brands that I speak to um, talk about how hard it is to get through to the um, Whole Foods buyer and how difficult it is to get their attention. I always feel a bit guilty because we got the email of the buyer and then sent him an email. And I, I, I literally got a reply within five minutes. And the first line was, you had me at Mochi. And he was super interested because I think mochi ice cream was already quite popular in the States and was quite a strong seller for them. So it was a really easy process for us to sort of get initial listing at Whole Foods. It's funny because I often have a similar thought when people are saying, you know, how do you get through to a buyer? And it's really difficult. And in all of the businesses, the insurgent businesses that I've worked with, so whether that was Goo or Chibani or Strong Roots or many of the others in between, I have never had a problem getting a buyer meeting or getting a buyer to answer an email or getting the buyer to ring me back. And that says an awful lot about the product category that you're in and your timing and also your execution within that product category, doesn't it? So I don't mean that to be almost a downer for people out there listening, but maybe it could also be a bit of a a holding up the mirror and asking them to question themselves and say, could we do this in a more innovative way? Are we really just part of a crowd that's doing, you know, we're part of a posse that's doing similar things in that category at the moment. And that's why we're not getting traction. So you guys got traction because you were totally new and different, but you were riding on the very beginning of a wave of something that was already happening in the States. And the Whole Foods buyer knew that because they'd probably been on safari to the States or seen what their colleagues were doing over there, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But just to add to your theory, I think there's a bit of that, but then we've also gone through uh, many, many buyer meetings where we haven't had immediate traction and it's taken a couple of years. So I wouldn't want to put everyone off if they're not getting immediate traction. So has it just taken time because they needed to see it working somewhere else? Yeah, I think for many years we had um, a perception that we were quite a kind of a premium brand that sold well in Whole Foods and Selfridges and places like that but uh, and in London. Uh, and there was always a question mark of would we work outside of London? Uh, and that, that was holding back some of the more um, sort of mainstream retailers. And you know what? Maybe you wouldn't have at that point in time. Maybe they were right. Yeah, they could well have been. It's all about timing, really. So you went into Whole Foods. What happened then, Vivian? I mean, from a run rate point of view, did things crank up massively? Did you have to make changes in terms of how you manufacture the product? No, 
we're really lucky that um, our scale up was relatively slow. So we thought we were the best selling ice cream in Whole Foods, but it was it, the, the volumes we could cope with them. And then we started doing our pick and mix freezers that people saw in the Whole Foods because everyone liked choice and and, and that, that worked brilliantly. And it did really allow us to develop our manufacturing processes, which becomes relevant when later on in the story, when TikTok hits and the growth was so quick, it was just really hard to, to scale up that quickly. But no, it just meant that we could, we could slowly get used to our manufacturing processes. Can I ask you a question about the pick and mix freezers? Because to just draw another parallel to Goo, when James Averdick started Goo in 2004, everybody said to him, you're absolutely crazy to think that the chilled buyer in retail grocery will accept a glass ramekin. They won't accept glass into chilled. Everybody knows that's a no-no. And if I go into an Asian supermarket, there's lots of pick and mix type stuff and there's baskets of frozen stuff, right? But usually in traditional grocery retail in West, we haven't had that. Everything's been packaged. Did anyone say to you, it'll never work having loose frozen stuff? It'll get dirty. It'll get dusty. The supermarkets won't want it. And did you have to overcome that? Or how did that work? Was it the fact that it was frozen that you didn't need to worry about that? And um, we definitely had people thinking this this will never work, and um, you know I, I don't get the concept, and they were quite surprised. And to be honest, when when we first thought of the concept, we also had the same kind of doubts of would people get it. Um, but I, I guess different retailers have different appetite for innovation. So what we found is that Whole Foods loves innovation and like, you know, it's visually really appealing and it gives the consumer choice and it's, they already have kind of self-serve, uh, you know, kombucha bars or um, hot, hot meals ready to pick, kind of pick and mix. Um, and so they were really big supporters of it. But then I guess detractors would be right in that mainstream retailers don't typically want these kind of units uh, on their floor space. But in other countries, there's different appetites. For, for example, in France, um, we have about 300 of these freezers and they, they do really well. And I think retailers there have a lot more appetite for, for things like this. Might be something to do with the culture going to the market on a Thursday morning and picking your own produce is much more part of the French way, isn't it? Yeah, maybe actually. But I just think it's an interesting one, especially with the um, HFSS coming through and the fact that lots of products in treats and snacking are not going to be able to promote in the same way before. And if you're thinking about the path to purchase, giving people an experience that helps to drive awareness in store and trial and consideration because they're actually going to experience something different rather than picking up a package is going to be even more important. So what you guys did back then is even more important in the coming years for treats and snacking, isn't it? Definitely, I think so. I think actually the other beauty about these um, uh, pick and mix freezers are eventually if people bring their own packs, it is a way to get rid of packaging. Absolutely, much more important yet to point that out. If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, then please do share it on social media and take a minute or two to write a review on iTunes. It would make a big difference in allowing us to interview even more super guests with great advice that can transform how you do business. So back to the, because I really want to get into the manufacturing story here, because this is one of the fascinating things about your business. You were in Whole Foods and your manufacturing was a slow growth. When did you decide that you needed to step change, come out of your parents' bakery? And what was that manufacturing story? So I think we were really hands-on. Like I made up the recipe. We both sat at the machine and produced it. Um, and so we really knew everything to do with the product from absolutely all the bits of recipe, how to make it and like learning to, to taste the dough, smell the dough, feel it and make sure that it was cooked to the right to the right texture 
And so there's quite a lot of craft to it. And we went through that process with our father, who, who sadly passed away, but he taught us how to make dough. That the dough that we make it because we find it very special it's very thin it melts in your mouth I think other people that make mochi it can be a little bit more gelatinous so and, and chewy and heavy claggy claggy yeah and so we started you know just in our parents a small corner of our parents bakery that they they gave us and we slowly sort of built it up and so when we got the contract with the Osushi they that was when we really thought god this is we think this is we can make a business out of this because it was you know it's a big it was a big orders. They, they had a hundred restaurants. It was, um, you know, week in, week out, they're ordering. And so that was when we thought, you know, let's, let's, let's move into a, another building. And so we took that plunge to, but our parents also moved into that bakery. So we just moved out of that building into another building and we just had our own floor. And then the bakery was on the, on the second floor. And so we just started with that one machine in, in that little space. And then as our business grew, we could just buy extra bits of kit um, and just slowly grow that way. And then we just, I guess we just learned to bring on more help and then train people up. And then it was just a very slow learning experience. And, you know, I had to, I had to learn how to be the engineer. You know, if there was anything wrong with the machine, I'd be on the phone. They'd be telling me how to tighten, check this and check this pulse. And I really, you know, we did absolutely everything. And then after we made all the, all the mochi, we had the packet. I remember Howard and I working till midnight, you know, 4am on a Monday morning, just packing all these boxes in a warehouse and labeling everything by hand and so I think we slowly grew and then then we'd buy a a labeling machine because we had to label so much more and so it was just a very small slow process for us to to learn and grow because we didn't grow up in manufacturing as such in that in that in that sense and so you know I I hear a lot of people on your on your podcast who have worked in FMCG and they have they've learned that skill we didn't know any of that so we just had to learn as we went along. But I bet you, as a result of that, you are incredibly comfortable with your costings and you are able to point out to the accountant or the finance director where things can be tightened because you know how the machines work. You know how the dough works. You know how to make the ingredients deck. Fabulous in terms of quality, but also in terms of cost effectiveness, right? And the process as well. Absolutely. And as we've scaled up and, you know, you look at how, how many can someone make? You know the number of movements because we haven't we haven't automated our system at all. We've just sort of like increased the number of machines that we have and it's all still very labour intensive. And so I, you kind of know all the movements that need to happen. So the costings and, and ha- so you're absolutely right. We know our product really, really well. That's amazing. And did you always, was manufacturing your own product and owning that craft and, and that scale up, was that always going to be something you did? Did you ever consider co-manufacturing? We did. I think it would, well, I would, I don't want to say easier because <laughs> I know it comes with its own headaches, but um, we did speak to some industry leaders at the time and they said, no, don't spend any of your money on, on building your own factory. It's all on marketing, find a co-manufacturer. But there was no one else that could make it. And I'm actually, I think we are so happy that we make our own product because it's just meant that we can keep that quality. And I've spoken to other business owners who do co-pack and people don't care about the product as much as when your own people and so when you instill that culture of quality is first, every single mochi that leaves this factory counts. I think that really makes a difference in, in, in the quality of your product. So what kind of scale is that facility now? How many people work there and what kind of capacity do you have for growth? So we moved into a new facility um, at the beginning of 2020. Yeah, it was a huge step up for us from our previous facility. Massive investment. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and we had to close the place because uh, so much of our business was to food service and all the restaurants were closed. So it was a, it was a really nervous time for us. 
Um, but since then, we've kind of grown to, we have 300 mochi makers now. And we've had to recruit probably 200 of those in the last year. So it's been a crazy time. And how many people in the office? I mean, you know, in commercial and finance and all those support services and marketing? I think about 50. Yeah, we've got 250 people that actually work in the factory and probably about 50 in the office. I mean, it's a big company. Yeah, it's, it's grown so quickly. How do you manage the factory and the people and the buildings? and the, I mean, that is just a humongous job. I think um, a real key is having really great people to support you. Um, and I think that a step change of a business was when we sort of invested in our senior leadership team, which was a big move for us because every time you're looking at salaries, you're like, gosh. So at what point did you start investing real money in senior people? I think it was around 2017, 2018, um, where we made the decision that we're going to go out and recruit um, a sort of a really solid senior leadership team. Yeah. And that's a point in time that often can go wrong for businesses because they don't know what they're looking for. And then there can be clashes, but it obviously went well for you guys. Yeah, we had great advice. So we had um, Mark, who we work with on our on our board. He um, he just advised us, and I think it's always good for anyone who's starting starting off to have good advisors on their board that they can trust because they've been on that journey before. And so, so much of the, so so much of what I've learned, it, it, you know, if I had to apply that again, I I could learn so much. So always have someone with that experience on your board. And he said to us, you know, hire really good people, hire people that are a little bit more expensive than you can afford. And it was so right because we have a brilliant senior leadership team. And it's because of those people that we have been able to grow at the speed as we have. So had you done this big investment and this move into the new facility before the TikTok gate or after? How did those two things, I mean, were you set up for this massive surge that you'll now tell us about? How did that work, Vivian? Well, we had, we moved into the factory in, in January 2020. And then we had to sort of like mothball the factory because we shut it down for a, a couple of weeks because we just didn't know what was going on. We furloughed our staff for a bit. And then um, TikTok happened in Germany first. And so there was this big sort of order from Germany. So when you say TikTok happened, some people might not know what that means. What did that mean? We kind of went viral on TikTok in Germany first, and it was a similar video of people going to the stores to buy little moons. And so that was a f- our first taste of it, but it wasn't as huge as, as the second wave of TikTok that happened in the UK in January 2021. And so we were already in our larger factory, but we, we were coming from a standing start. We'd already used all of our stock because we were in cash management mode. We didn't know how long COVID was going to last for. And so we'd, decide, we'd made the decision as a board to just wind down all of our stocks because we just didn't know, you know, what was going to happen with the business. And that was, you know, that's cash preservation. And so when it happened, we didn't have any stocks. And so we had to make everything to order. So we're already on the back foot. And so, you know, going from a standing start, also everyone was socially distanced. The factory was completely different. It was, people couldn't stand so close to each other. So it was, it was, This year, the last 18 months have been super tough from a manufacturing point of view. And then we had other issues like we'd run out of cardboard and it was really difficult to get supplies from Asia and and all sorts of things happened. And then in January 2021, when um, we went viral on TikTok in the UK. Talk to us about the numbers. I mean, what were we going from in terms of numbers of cases going out or pallets going out to what? What was this like? All of a sudden went to kind of, I guess, sales in our uh, grocery customers in the UK were up about 2000%. 
And so we, we produce a lot over winter and store it up because, you know, it's a seasonal business. So we initially were able to sort of get lots of product out there, but it was just disappearing immediately. And there was just no way to meet the kind of levels of demand that we were facing. So we we're just scrambling around trying to allocate between customers. And ultimately, you couldn't do anything about the math- mathematical problem that you just can't produce enough. And so after that, we just, for the last, I'd say, since then, basically, we've just been doing everything we can to scale as fast as we can um, whilst trying to maintain our product quality. Um, and that's basically involved um, putting on extra shifts, um, putting on sort of 24-hour shifts, weekend shifts. And so it's been a real challenge. Often, you know, there could be a big surge in demand like this and then it'll go back down to something a little bit higher than normal levels. Where did you guys pan out after TikTok? Did it increase penetration massively because that trial had happened? Yeah, absolutely. So what it did was first it massively increased our points of distribution because we went from only being listed at Salt Ocado, Waitrose and Tesco to also bringing on Asda, uh, Morrison's and um, Sainsbury's. So and and also we've got into Tesco um, Expresses as well. So I think firstly we're in a lot more places, and secondly there's been so much trial of our product um, that our base level has also increased um, about three times. Okay, so your base level has increased three times. That's the really interesting thing. So you have a model now, which is if people try it, they like it, and they will continue to buy it. Definitely. And I think when, when TikTok first happened, it was obviously, I mean, we are probably slightly older than the usual demographic of TikTok, but we all had it because, you know, Little Means has been on it for, you know, for a while. Uh, but we realized very early on that whilst we were huge on TikTok, the majority of our consumers don't actually use TikTok. So most people wouldn't have heard that we're a thing. And so we, we worked very early on, we took the decision to sort of try and use the, the sort of, uh, the newsworthy uh, news that we've gone viral on TikTok and bring it into mainstream media. So, um, you know, making a story out of it to try and get it into sort of the the tabloids and and things like that. So it became sort of apparent to sort of a broader demographic that we were a thing, yeah. That's amazing. So that was, how far are we on now from that? That was this year. That was the last nine months. So where do you guys go for here? Where's your big growth going to come from? Is it UK, more headroom in the UK or is it the rest of the world? What's the plan? I think there's still a lot of um, headroom in the UK. Um, I think there's uh, there's more SKUs we want to launch, more NPD, but we're also um, focusing on our international markets. So our other two international markets that we really focus on are France and Germany, where we're really seeing a lot of traction there. And you're building your own team in France, just like we did at Gu. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we've been in France for quite a long time, um, but pre- predominantly selling to restaurants. Um, but when we started picking up traction in, in Front Prix uh, with our pick and mix freezers, we really we realised we needed feet on the ground to sort of look after all of these freezers. And at the same time, we were looking for a distributor that could distribute frozen um, and do a good job. And we, we met with a lot of them and actually we, we found it a real struggle to find a suitable partner. And so in the end, we said, look, we can't just keep looking around forever. We just have to sort of start trying to make things happen ourselves. Um, and so we took the decision um, a year or so ago to sort of start really invest in the team in France. And, and now that's going super well. We're in, um, we're in Carrefour, about 500 of them. And we're also just got a listing at Casino. Um, and so, yeah, that's looking really promising. We've got a great team out there. You're not in Monoprix yet? I think we're in discussions with them. Okay. Yeah. Got to be in Monoprix. 
Yeah. Although they are only 2% of the market. So we're kind of thinking, right, we really need to be getting into the sort of, um, uh, you know, clerks and, and places like that if we want to grow. I don't know. They might be 2% of the market. I'm really surprised they're only 2% of the market. That sounds very low. They should be much higher than that. But they might be a lower percentage of the market for lots of categories. But for a category like yours, they will be a much higher percent. And also, when you think about the way to purchase of the people that will buy in Monoprix and their spending power, and even the experience of buying your brand in Monoprix, I would be pushing that, as well as Franprix and Carrefour. I definitely agree. We're not there because we've made a strategic decision not to be there. <laughs> I think we'd love to be there. Okay, that makes sense. So look, guys, this has been absolutely brilliant. I'm so delighted to get to know you a little bit. I love your products. As I said to you when I got in touch originally, I got to taste them in 2016 from one of those freezers in Whole Foods in Glasgow and brought them back to a dinner party where we all got very pissed on lots of bottles of wine and ate your mochi until late into the night and into the next morning. So thank you for that experience. It's one that we always remember. I'm wishing you all the best. It's been brilliant to talk to you. I can't wait to eat you in London next week because I'm going there and I'm going to be going straight to Whole Foods and buying some product to take home. And yeah, let's catch up at the end of next year and see where you've got to because it's really exciting. Thanks. Great. Thanks so much for, for having us on. I listen to all your podcasts, so uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great experience to actually be on it. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I listen to all of them too. Oh, thanks, Bill, guys. That's really kind of you. Listen, the very best of luck. Keep in touch and we'll be watching with great excitement for the future of Little Moons. 